0: Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Chris Cheney from The Living End, whose debut album just turned 25. 25 years of the debut album. Have you been diving back in and what are your thoughts?
1: Um, I have not been diving back in. (laughs) It's... um... I'm proud of that record and it's it's nice to celebrate it with the show at Festival Hall but I I haven't listened to it in in quite some time but uh you know it's we we figured we could either ignore the anniversary or we should do something big so we decided to do Festival Hall it's 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 too special a record to not do anything at all but we just haven't really made a habit of doing anniversary shows and looking back too often.
0: Why do you think you haven't like, made a habit of it?
1: Because we've always been looking forward. We've always been thinking about the next record, the next song, the next show. Um, I think too many bands kind of just, I don't know, they rest on their laurels and they probably run out of ideas. And we've we've been really lucky that we've had you know, quite a few successful records since then. That was obviously yeah. the one that put us on the map. Um But I think we always, you know, we always wanted to kind of keep keep moving forward. We sort of looked up, you know, I really admire bands like Midnight Oil and Nick Cave and stuff, but they just kind of, you know, it's the artistic kind of endeavour, I suppose, to if you sit there celebrating the past too much, you kind of, I think it can be a dangerous thing, I suppose, but But this one changed our life. You know, this record, when it came out, it changed everything for us. So, And it's a special record for a lot of people. So we thought, all right, well, what do we do? You know, do we do a couple of shows or do we do a tour? And we thought, no, let's just do one big show in Melbourne and then move on. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, I'm going to ask you to go back the year before the album came out. So you had second solution, prisoner, society, single, and then you had that year where that just kept getting bigger and bigger, and you were also working on your debut album at the time. Mm. Was it pressure? Or was it just so exciting?
1: It was sort of exciting. Um, I just I think I felt like I had a lot of ideas for songs, so I don't remember feeling the pressure as far as how am I going to follow up prisoner or second solution, and I I think part of that was that EP, you know, Second Solution was the first song. Prisoner was the second yeah. song. So that wasn't, we didn't think that that was anything special. That was just, it was an EP that had four songs, four or five songs, one of them being a cover. So I don't think we had this sort of, we sort of thought, Oh, this is, this is it. When we're, we're not going to write anything better than this. I felt like I was always writing and and writing a lot of different material. So I remember writing, like, Save the Day and West End Riot and All Torn Down and um, thinking, wow, they're they're really catchy. You know, they're in the same vein as that, and I could totally hear these songs being played on Triple J, I suppose, at that point. It was the only station that really sort of played us. So I guess I kind of, yeah, in answer to your question, I probably felt excited by it. I think it was about halfway through the recording that, the bidding war and the, and the hype really kind of went into overdrive. But I, I sort of feel like we just went into the studio and just went to work. I don't remember it being particularly fun. It, it wasn't not fun, but we just we just went in and made the recording and just did the job that needed to be done at
0: that point. Did you ever consider not putting Second Solution and Prisoner on the album because they'd gotten such an air in by that time?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I remember there being a... A conversation about having to re-record them, which I think was a bit weird, <clears throat> because we, um, yeah, we were going to sign to a different label, or we were talking to different labels, and therefore, I guess we felt we had to do new versions of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess there must have been a general consensus that that they should be on the record. Uh, it is kind of weird, though, isn't it? When I think about it now, that we that we'd already written them and released them. The fact that we recorded them again is kind of weird because in the past, you know, we we had done Hellbound, which was like nine tracks, and then we did It's For Your Own Good, and then we did the Prisoner and the second EP.
0: Yeah, because from here on in, it was like a triple J hit. Like, so by all purposes, yep. so, that could have easily been on the debut album, and it would have made sense. I think so.
1: Good. Yeah, I, I can't really remember what the what the conversation was, but I do, I do remember. <laughs> that when we recorded the, I know we're talking about the first record, but when we recorded the EP at Birdland yeah. in Chapel Street in Paran, we recorded those songs and then then the engineer, like we were in the control room listening or going in to listen, and he said, oh, there's a problem with the tape. I could hear him saying it to Lindsay Gravina. Oh, and Lindsay's like, what do you mean? He said, we don't have them. And he's like, we don't have what? And he said, we don't have the songs. Um, they've they've gone, like they've been erased or there's something. (laughs) And we were like, what the fuck? You know, and Lindsay was like, okay, you've got two options. We can either pack up and go home or just go in and record them again. So we went in and recorded the songs again, but we just did like one take of each one because I think we'd spent all day, there were new songs and we basically spent the time in the studio learning them, learning the arrangement and getting the perfect take. Then when they were erased, it was like, okay, well, I guess we'll just go in and play it again. And I literally went in and did like one take of each, and those are the ones that became the, the big hit on that on that EP. So the original versions were just lost forever.
0: And that's why there's a sense of urgency to them, because you were like, oh, shit, I've got to redo these.
1: It probably, yeah, it would be. It would be. <laughs> it, was, it was frustration and urgency and probably racing against the clock, because it would have been about 10 o'clock at night at that point. It was time to sort of basically start the mixing process. It was like, well, there's nothing to mix. Because then Lindsay, would he would come in afterwards, we would record with the engineer. And then he would come in like at the end of the night and go, okay, now play me what you guys have been doing. And it was like, oh, we don't don't have anything. (laughs) So anyway, that's why he was a natural to go into the studio to make the full record because we we worked well with him.
0: And did you work the exact same way for the full record in terms of how you tracked and
1: No, he was well, he was there for that. <laughs> <laughs> but we we um we uh yeah we, I remember we we worked pretty quick I think it was really capturing the energy that that was the thing. There wasn't like um there wasn't too much of the writing. I think we had rehearsed and written quite a lot like we knew what we were doing at that point it was really just trying to nail down the tempo and nail the take wasn't like we weren't piecing anything together it was like if you got halfway through and someone made a fluff you'd stop and you'd start it again and so i remember doing a lot of takes of the songs and just as with all of our records you know if you're not completely dripping with sweat when you walk into the control room to listen then there's something wrong.
0: How many takes do you tend to do for vocals? Do you piece those together, or do you just like kind of slam out a bunch of them, or how? Like, yeah,
1: I just slam out a bunch of them. But back then, I don't know. I I, I can't listen. I have a real hard time listening to those first few records. It just it's so juvenile, you know. It's just we were we were, we were trying to capture. A band that was just going to play at hundred miles an hour, and I was just going to over sing everything. It was it was all just so full on all the time. Everything we did that I, I I really struggled to to be able to listen to anything off that album <laughs> in a positive light. I know other people have a different perspective because when it hit, it was a moment in time. It, you know, it had a charm to it. It was a it was a record of its time. You know. That was what it sold what sold it so much was the energy jumping out of the speakers. Uh, if I had my time again, I'd probably do it differently. And it probably wouldn't have done what it did. So I just have to sort of accept that it is what it is.
0: So around that time, and I suppose it's a little bit more earlier, influences that seem obvious are things like stray cats, bit of cure, like you kind of covered the cure, um, Elvis a bit the jam the clash what were your kind of contemporary influences if any at that time
1: um there were uh supergrass was always a big one i loved them i loved them because they had that cheeky kind of image they had that energy they had that that punky kind of feel they had really catchy beatily kind of parts to their songs so they were one band that made me kind of stand up and take notice. But there probably wasn't a lot because I was always looking back, I suppose. Um, There was the punk rock stuff like Rancid and and Green Day's Dookie, you know, they were, I loved them for the same reason again because it was very cartoon-esque and had a lot of personality to it and just good songs. Um, So I kind of got into, you know, a bit of that sort of American not late 90s kind of punk, mid-90s punk stuff, um, you know, bad religion and stuff like that. But I definitely felt like there really wasn't a band that we used as a blueprint, you know. We kind of had all those influences and we tried to m- mesh them together and in my brain it worked. I just had to try and figure out how to put it on to, put it into sound, I suppose, you know, it was was having like the Scar influence and the pop influence and even having like Aussie rock stuff you know like the oils and chisel and Aussie crawl the stuff that I loved when I was a little kid I wanted to have all that in there as well so it could have been an absolute disaster because we didn't want to sound confused but we wanted to sound kind of original and I think it all just sort of came out you know we, we poured it all into the melting pot and it and it came out in in the way that Scott and I had always sort of imagined. You know, you can imagine a band a certain way. It doesn't. You don't necessarily. You're not necessarily going to find it, or it's not going to come to fruition. But for us, I feel it did. Like we, the Living End on that record had its own thing going on.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the Australian rock bands because I really love Roll On. I reckon that has a lot more of the obvious Australian yep. rock. Was that intentional or is that just yeah, of... yeah, right?
1: No, it was, it was, it was. I guess it was just we were getting further into that sort of stuff at that point. I guess maybe we'd accepted that we it was kind of cool because when we were in high school, we were anti that sort of stuff. I mean, in the back of my mind, I loved Australian crawl and I loved Chisel and the Angels and all that stuff. But when we were in high school, it was like you know, we were playing 50s stuff and playing the kind of gigs where you didn't have those sorts of bands and, you know, those sorts of cover bands and stuff were kind of, I felt like the enemy to us. You know, they were they were drawing the big crowds and we were playing to sort of no one. <laughs> so it's, it's funny in a way that we've now become this band that gets played on commercial modern rock radio and we've become friends with those very people when we were definitely on the outside of that, we were like the alternative to the alternative. I mean, you had Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and stuff, and then we were outside of all that again. Um, so by the time we did Roll On, I was getting heavily into ACDC and just wanting to have a, a kick-ass guitar record. Um, and and just so so, you know, that... That influence, um, yeah, came in really heavy o- on that album. And I think it was just about trying to break away from what the first record had done. That was that was the big thing was like I people were like, oh, yeah, the Prisoner of Society band. And I was like, there's so much more to this band. And I was on a mission to sort of prove it.
0: Yeah, Carry Me Home, Don't Shut the Gates. Those kind of songs are very kind of, yeah, you kind of do a lot more kind of, guitar in on the second record as well like a, a lot of kind of you know complicated yeah it kind of I
1: feel like it was the first record kind of grown up a bit and sort of became tougher and there was an edge to it and it was all about big riffs and whereas the first record still has a lot of that jazzy kind of guitar playing
0: and Scarlet.
1: you know it's a bit more cute in a way but roll on definitely was like um you know it was like we sort of it's sort of put a Fred Perry on and kind of shaved its head and got a bit of like tough skin kind of vibe to it
0: yeah and you must have known like you'd be playing big festivals and stuff and so you must have known yeah. that you could do kind of arena type rock yeah but,
1: yeah but the thing is you know that's what's so amazing about that first record is that we wouldn't I didn't I never saw us as like an arena kind of band I always thought we like just a sweaty kind of band, because that was just what we had, all we had played was, you know, we started out really in that in that very sort of um, pigeonholed kind of rockabilly scene where it was people 50s dancing in front of us, you know, and if we played mm-hmm. too fast, they told us to slow down, we can't dance to you, or if they didn't get up and dance at all, we would kind of leave the stage like feeling really flat, oh, we didn't get anyone up on their feet tonight, you know. And that was all we kind of cared about at that point was pleasing that sort of crowd. So the idea of being having these massive anthems and having thousands of people and and our songs being like chanty kind of things was a long way from where we initially started. So I think when it just happened that we had with that record with West End and Second and Prisoner became these big anthemic songs that I probably went, oh, okay, we can do that. And so with Roll On, it was trying to take it up a whole another level again. And one of the bands that really influenced that record was the Dropkick Murphys, who we became really good friends with on that yeah. first record. And I was watching them on the side of the stage and seeing they just had this, like, army of followers and, you know, singing every word. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. So we kind of embraced that side of what, you know, in with the ACDC element and then with everything else from the first record
0: were you surprised when triple j played from here on in because it wasn't like it didn't sound like anything else that they were playing at the time
1: um no i wasn't i wasn't really surprised no because i remember hearing things like you know we always used to go to there was a club here called oxide which was right that played like body jar and, and um you know all the American stuff and, and English punk, but the local bands that were getting played were like Body Jar and Caustic Soda and Frenzel and and stuff. And, and I felt like that song fit in with, with them. And again, it was us transitioning from being just a psychobilly band to, to putting a few different chords in and, and and beatily kind of harmonies and stuff that I heard in what those bands were doing. And, I, you know, they were getting played on Triple J a bit, so it didn't surprise me when... And I, I knew that was the, the catchy song, even the intro, you know, it just leaps out of the speakers and it kind of that was a bit of a blueprint for us, I think, that song, because every song on the debut record seems to have an, an intro, to, an intro and an outro that don't necessarily relate to the rest of the song. But I always had this idea that all great records, you know, whether it's Hound Dog or Johnny Be Good or whatever it is, they have a calling card. They start with something that you immediately go, ah, oh, I know this song, and oh, that's catchy. So I think from here on in was the first time we'd kind of, we had that idea.
0: Yeah, All Torn Down is another song that has like an interesting structure. So it's got that kind of intro part that's completely different, and then it gets into a kind of a scar thing. It's yep. Very interesting song. Um, were you into scar music, or was it just that it was permeating rockabilly and punk and kind of even skatery kind of stuff as well
1: no I was into it because as as early as uh, probably 93 94 which was when we were transitioning from being the runaway boys into the living end where we basically had we're starting to really really push forward this idea that we're not going to be a cover band we're going to write our own material and we're gonna find an original name and And so it was around about year 94, 95 that we started to play places like the Tote and the Espy and um, the Punters Club. And we would get put on the bill with a lot of ska bands and punk bands and stuff, because the subcultures in this country are not big enough to have (laughs) big enough scenes for each band. So the great thing is everyone meshes together. it's like in England and America, it's like there's a rockabilly scene, there's a ska scene, but I feel like Australia was always so mixed, which was great. So we started to play with bands like Groin and um, Area 7, and, um, and, that, and, and we really liked those bands because we'd also grown up listening to Madness and The Specials and loved that English two-tone stuff. So it's just natural for us to have this song that had the upstrokes um, it just happens to have a very pop kind of chorus, but I don't know. There's not a great, there's no great sort of thought behind it. I just sit down with a guitar and just write what comes out at that point, you know. But I, I'm, to me, like those bands wouldn't have had a chorus like all torn down. It's way too pop for any of them, but they'd have that kind of verse. But for yeah. me, I was like, well, I, you know, I love. Um, you know, Elton John records and electric light orchestra and, like, really full-on pop stuff. So that was the chorus I chose for that tune.
0: Were you prolific around that time? Like, did you throw a lot of songs away or were you more kind of measured and kind of...? No, I always
1: had a lot of songs thrown away. I've got boxes and boxes of tapes and things that I I sipped through and I just, you know, it's, oh, I forgot about that one. Oh, I forgot about those ones, you know songs that just never, ever saw the light of day, that we went into studios and recorded all, all garage kind of tape deck sort of recordings. So, yeah, there was always there was a, always a, a lot of ideas. And I, I don't reckon I ever sort of thought that, well, I, I didn't think that the songs would last the way that they have or they would do what they have. I, I, in my mind, it kind of worked. And, you know, I, if I thought a song was good, but, I could see there was probably a novelty factor and sometimes that just means, like with Prisoner, it doesn't get much more novelty than that. But the fact that that's stuck around for 25 years and become what it's become is amazing to me because it could have just been a huge hit for five minutes on Triple J and then just disappeared. And it wouldn't surprise me because it's, it's so over the top that it's probably very easy to get sick of. But it seems to have just, with all those songs, they seem to have held... Held their place.
0: How many of them do you still play on any given night?
1: Well, we play more off the first record than probably any any yeah. of our other records. You know, so there's Bloody Mary, Second Solution, West End, Prisoner, sometimes Save the Day.
0: Yeah, it's quite a lot still.
1: You know, it's just because it 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 just the impact that that record had initially. um It's it's been it's been harder to drop those songs. You know, the further along you get in your career, the more songs you get. You know, there's only so much time you have in each set.
0: Do you do longer sets now?
1: Yeah, well, we're sort of getting to that point, I think, you know, where it's like something's got to give. You either play a longer set or you have to start, um, you know, chopping and changing between the tunes. We've always been one of those bands who haven't shied away from playing, you know the the radio hits I suppose and the songs that people want to hear because they're fun because at the end of the day it's it's like the reaction is worth it you know it's uh, I, it's still just a buzz to play something like Prisoner because the place erupts every time and so but I, yeah there's I mean there's a couple of records that I really like and I'm really proud of we don't play those songs um, which we should so. You know, it's just about going through different phases, yeah. I suppose, where songs come in and
0: out. Do you have songs from throughout your career that you feel were overlooked where you went, oh, surely that sh- that should have been a hit?
1: Well, I do. I, you know, there's, there's a few that I, I know they're kind of fan favourites that I feel were as good as, as some of the ones off the first record. I really like For Another Day. I feel yeah. like that had that that was off. Um, the ending is just the beginning repeating. Um, I thought that had something. Nothing lasts forever. I thought you know is a, is a valid kind of song. Um, but the thing is, it's it, that's only my sort of perspective. I think for a lot of people, they want to hear the living end playing hundred miles an hour. They want that rebel kind of you know rebel call kind of. <laughs> all guns blazing kind of thing. And when we slow down and give them something like for another day or nothing lasts forever, they're like, that's not the living end. You know, <laughs> give us your other stuff. So I think in a way it's been kind of overlooked. Whereas people that listen to our records and come to all the shows, they would probably argue they like those even more than, you know, the the stuff from the first record that they that initially turned them onto the band.
0: I was listening back to the first album. I find it interesting that you ended with an instrumental song.
1: Yeah. You'd, we wouldn't do that now, you know. It's I, I think it's really cool that we did that because it just shows our naivety, you know. Now we'd probably go, oh, we should probably just have you know another song on there. That I mean, these days we wouldn't even put out fourteen songs, yeah, just really wanted to. People just put out a song now, but but I feel like it shows that we just were trying to represent the band and show all the aspects of what made the band and. So that was just a piece that I had written when I was at Box Hill Tafe and you need to do like a year-end assessment. So I was getting into like fusion kind of guitar playing at that point, mixing it in with the the Chet Atkins, Scotty Moore, Rockabilly kind of stuff, but to have different time changes in there and, and diff- you know, I don't think there's a song on the planet that has more chords than that song. <laughs> I used them all at that point. And it was just something that we had adapted and I taught the other guys and somehow it ended up as the last song on the record. I guess it was us just kind of wanting to show our chops, you know, because we really prided ourselves on being musicians. And a lot of the bands, I think, we thought on Triple J, they wrote catchy songs, but they couldn't really play. You know, we came from this jazz, country, blues, rockabilly roots kind of scene where you really had kick-ass players and we used to love watching amazing musicians so we wanted to be the best players we could so we thought all right well let's let's just have a bit of a show-off piece at the end of the record
0: yeah remember you guys used to have that kind of ethos seemingly when you played live where it's just like we're just gonna blow everyone off the stage and show how good we are and it really worked in the 90s festival scene yeah yeah as you said there was very kind of simple three chord music around back then yeah, I mean,
1: that's, and I love the Ramones and I love the simplicity of that kind of music and the White Stripes. I mean, he's an, obviously an amazing musician, technically. Um, but we sort of felt like we wanted to have that, the the punk rock kind of energy. We wanted to have the catchiness of of really well-written songs and we wanted to have the musicianship and we wanted to have, you know, the the kind of, The edginess of like the oils, we wanted to have it all. We wanted to have all everything, all those things in in one band, and I couldn't see any reason why we shouldn't strive for that. Whereas a band like the Ramones and and like you know that sort of three chord punk rock thing, you know that they hate bands that can play. You know that like Pink Floyd and stuff. It was like the the, it was all about being anti that. Whereas we always sort of thought if as long as it's done in good taste still why can't you have guitar solos and have fancy parts and you know have tricky little parts and odd time signatures and and all that as well as just hit one chord and rock the fuck out on that as well you know it's like you got it it was about the balance
0: yeah well, you certainly proved that you can do it 25 years it's quite impressive that you know those songs have still stuck around as you said yeah yeah no I feel I feel blessed in a way
1: because uh we hoped that that record would would be popular and we hoped that people would like what we did and it just exceeded any expectations we had and you know when it hit the charts and stayed on the charts for all that time we had all those singles and it just it was like We had worked so hard for so long to try and get a foot in the door. And then when we finally did, man, the door just blew wide open. It was crazy.
0: And that was Chris Cheney from The Living End. The 25th anniversary edition of their debut album is out as of yesterday. And the band are playing one show at Festival Hall on November 4. But that has long sold out, unfortunately. So if you don't have tickets, you don't have tickets. My guest next weekend is Simon Day from Ratcat. Until then.